Welcome to the Final Girl Friday Archives. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. The Archives is a collection of episodes from the early days of Final Girl Friday, when it was still finding itself. I was still trying to figure out what the hell it even was. We've grown a lot since 2019, but I didn't want to delete the old episodes because they're a part of the show's history, and a lot of them contain a lot of information about the movies that we love, so I've just retooled them a little bit. If you're new here and you feel like starting from the beginning, you've come to the right place. So after what has proven to be one of the longest springs I've personally ever experienced, it's finally summer in Nebraska. We only have a couple of really gorgeous weeks before we sort of slip into those so hot you want to die weeks between mid-July and mid-September. And although I would like to be able to say that I'm going to use this time to go camping, do really outdoor summery fun things, if the past is any indication, I will instead be hanging out at home, watching summery horror movies. (laughs) Um, And now that I'm keeping an audio blog about horror movies, I thought, what better way to kick off that inevitable summertime scary movie binge than to talk a little bit about some of my favorite summer movies here. This isn't necessarily going to be like a structured movie recommendation list. It's more just me talking a little bit about why I love some of these films that I watch almost exclusively in summer. And not all of them are set in this season either. Uh, Some of them I just for whatever reason, really like watching them during this time of year. Most of these films are a little older, so I'm not personally going to worry too much about trying not to give away any like spoilers. Um, but there are a couple that I, I obviously will try to take into consideration that people, there might be people listening to this and those people might not have seen all of these movies. So I would say a soft spoiler warning, and I'm going to try my best to be considerate when it comes to like big deal plot points and things like that. I did read through quite a lot of lists over the course of the last week or so that people have put together on their blogs, like, you know, 10 best movies to watch during summer and five really great 4th of July, you know, horror films, that kind of thing, Um, of which there are like barely any, by the way. Um, A lot of those lists, I would say almost all of them included the classic standard summertime films. That includes The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, uh, Jaws, Friday the 13th, and then weirdly enough, Sleepaway Camp. Like, I've seen a lot of lists with Sleepaway Camp on them, which surprised me only because I kind of live under a bit of a rock when it comes to non-horror movie-related life. And uh, I wasn't aware that Sleepaway Camp had kind of garnered a little bit more popularity in the mainstream lately. So I was very surprised. Like, I saw it popping up, like, on blogs that I just would not have imagined that they would include Sleepaway Camp. So I was really happy to see that. I'm a fan of all of those classic 
movies. I think that they're all really great. In fact, Jaws is not just one of my favorite horror films. It's just one of my favorite films in general. And I thought that I might talk about it a lot more on the 4th of July, that maybe I would record an entry for the 4th and and talk about Jaws. But for the purposes of this, I'm just going to kind of stray away from most of those like really popular picks that I've been seeing. I'm going to try to talk a little bit more about movies that maybe don't pop up all over the internet around this time. And hopefully, if somebody out there is listening to this, they'll hear about a movie they haven't seen yet, and maybe they'll watch it and enjoy it. First up, I would like to begin with an apology, because the first movie on my my list um, is another Stephen King adaptation, which my first and only entry thus far was it was about Stephen King's It. I promise I'm not just like doing an audio blog about Stephen King adaptations. It just works out that way that one of my favorite films to watch during this time of year is also based on a book by Stephen King. Um, and that film is Cujo from 1983. I was actually personally surprised that I didn't see this cropping up more on the list that I read throughout the course of this week, primarily because I consider Cujo to be almost the very embodiment of summertime. And it does have everything I look for anyway, in a seasonal film, or at least, you know, for this particular season. It's set in Castle Rock, Maine, but the film was actually shot in California in 1983. And so the landscape itself and the fashion of the time, the color of their cars, you know, everything about the film has those sort of like muted primary colors with a kind of like almost like sun washed warmth about them. I'm not a painter or a set designer. Like I can't really talk about the colors in any sort of educated way, but it feels like a very summery film to me. I think it's set in the early part of the season because um, Tad had just started day camp kind of when the story really gets going. But still, it feels very hot. And it gets hotter and hotter as the film goes on, especially because heat and the weather or the the season itself is almost a kind of character in the film, which is one of the things I love most about it. Um, Just very briefly to talk about the story itself, you have a small family, uh, Donna, Tad, and Vic played, Donna's played by Dee Wallace. And she is a bored housewife. That's the best way that I know how to describe her. She is taking everything in her life for granted. She has a wonderful son. He's adorable and he loves his parents and, you know, he's just so cute. And she has a wonderful loving husband who works very hard to take care of the family and he clearly loves her. And she's bored. So she's uh, stripping his best friend or what I gather was one of his best friends or just maybe a friendly neighbor. Honestly, I don't know. They seemed close. They played tennis together. Uh, So she's having an affair, and she's not necessarily unkind to her husband. She's just kind of cold and distant. And um, the first, like, third of the film is sort of about that. It's about her, and we kind of get a glimpse into her life and also the things that she is taking for granted in it. And while that's going on, you also have a big St. Bernard um, that is so cute. (laughs) And he gets bit by a bat. We know that he's... He belongs to someone out on a farm or, you know, out in kind of the middle of nowhere. But we don't really know anything else about the dog except that he was bit by a bat. And 
as these two stories progress, the rabies continue to affect the dog and we learn a little bit more about where the dog lives and what the dog is going through. We're also learning about uh, Donna, what she's going through, and eventually these two characters, the dog and Donna, converge. That's, it's not like a supernatural horror movie. It's not, a you know, it's not about a serial killer. It's stalking a bunch of, it's about life dealing everyone in it a really shitty hand for a few minutes. That's basically what it is. It's, you know, it, and the rabies are really the monster of the film. Cujo, I've never, again, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but I have not read this book. This is not one of the King novels that I've read yet on my journey through the Stephen King bibliography, but um, I don't, so I don't know how much Cujo is pushed as a monster in the book, but I never really saw Cujo, the dog, as the monster. Even after the rabies have completely taken him over and he's killed a couple of people and he has Donna and Tad trapped in a car um, and he's trying to kill them, even then I don't see Cujo as the monster. I see the rabies as the monster, as well as the season, the heat, and the situation, where the house that they are trapped is. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Um, Donna takes Tad out in the car to get it fixed. The car is broken down. Nobody is at this abandoned house where the dog is, and, you know, everything sort of follows from there. But So the heat, the season, um, the location, the rabies, the disease itself uh, – all of those things, even the car, I think all of it is sort of villainous because everything is working against Donna. And it's such an incredible, for me as an audience member watching this film, it, it creates an incredible transformation for me. And I love it when films are able to do that because when you first see, when I first saw the film, I was annoyed by Dee Wallace's character. I, I didn't like her. I, I, was, I just was like, look at this beautiful life that you have. Stop being so bored. You have everything. You know what I mean? Like, that's, she annoyed me. Um, but by the end of the film, particularly because of Dee Wallace's performance in it, by the end of the film, I was just completely right there with her. I felt like I was living in her skin miserably. And I was just going along with her in every decision, everything she does, all of her suffering and everything. She was so good. Um, but anyway, I've kind of digressed. I've kind of gotten away from what it is about the film that's summary to me. <laughs> uh, but also one of the things that I, I think makes me want to watch it at this time of year is the makeup artists, whatever they did to Dee Wallace and Danny Pintaro in that car is so uncomfortable for me in the best way possible. Like I have a hard time looking at Dee Wallace after a little while because I mean, it's, it's sticky, it's sweaty. They've been trapped in this car for a long, long time, you know. They're, they're in it for days and they're just sort of slowly being baked by the sun through the window, but also they're dehydrated and physically they look exactly like that. And it's really there, you know, and then of course they get dirtier and bloodier as the story goes on, especially D Wallace. And it's just, uh, it's a very uncomfortable film. I, lo I love that. <laughs> so Yeah. It, it would be the first one that I would recommend to people. Gujo is also interesting because, and this uh, this is um, just sort of like a personal note. To me, I like it because it was also, it was directed by Louis Teague. And he directed another Stephen King adaptation. <laughs> I swear, I watch other movies. Um, he directed Cat's Eye, which was the first movie that I remember ever uh, having nightmares from. So... I, I don't I have like a special spot in my heart for Louis Teague for giving me nightmares. 
for the very first time, at least that I remember. I went back and watched Cat's Eye not long ago, and it doesn't really hold up for me anymore, but little bitty me was utterly mortified by it. <laughs> and um, and Cucho came out the year I was born. So I don't know. There's a little bit of weird, like, kind of kismet there. And completely unrelated side note, the second movie ever to give me nightmares uh, was The Burps, which is also a wonderful summertime film, but because it's not technically horror, I didn't include it on the list. Now, I definitely support the inclusion of the first Friday the 13th on every summer horror list ever made because it is, as I said earlier, a classic. But I would also like to add to those lists um, my personal favorite Friday the 13th film, which is The Final Chapter from 1984. I feel like The Final Chapter has a lot of the same elements that any good Friday the 13th film has. You have a large group of kids that end up in a cabin at Camp Crystal Lake, and it's very kill by numbers. But you also have the inclusion of a couple of really important moments that go on to kind of uh, reshape the lore of Jason Voorhees and just the universe in general. Uh, the final chapter features the first appearance of Tommy Jarvis, who in this film is played by a very young Corey Feldman. And Tommy Jarvis is a very cool character, in my opinion, at least at this stage in his life, when he's still a child and he's making monster masks for kicks. Like the first time we see Tommy Jarvis in the film, we don't actually even see his face. He's just wearing a giant bug alien mask. He's into computer games, you know, at the very in the very earliest days of those being a thing. And Tommy goes on to uh, after this film, he's very important to the final chapter. But he also then goes on. He's in New Beginning. He's in Jason Lives. Uh, he's a playable character in Friday the 13th, the video game. And he appears in comic books and novelizations, which I didn't even know existed until I played the game. And now I really want to read some Friday novels, um, not necessarily just novelizations of the movies, but it's like any novel set in that universe would be really great. But um, so, man, I just completely derailed myself. <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, yeah. So that's one of the things that makes the final chapter, I think, such uh, a significant Friday film. But it's also just a really fun romp in the woods with some great actors and some just really neat moments. My personal favorite character in the film is Jimmy, portrayed by Crispin Glover, who is kind of the unrealized love of my life. I am biased in favor of Crispin Glover. <laughs> I love him in everything that he does, but I really love Jimmy. I think he's a great character. He's actually also, apart from Tommy Jarvis, really the only other character in the film that I genuinely come to care about. And maybe that is largely because he's being played by one of my favorite actors, but also because we get a lot more sort of like personal information about him than we do most of the other characters in the film because it's a slasher film and it's following its own rules very closely. And we're being given a lot of characters, many of them young, many of them having a lot of premarital sex, and they're just being sort of killed off one by one. We're not really given much time to care about them. And maybe because of my being predisposed to like a Crispin Glover character, in addition to the fact that Jimmy does have like a lot of lines where he's talking a lot about things that he's going through personally. So I care about Crispin and I don't want anything bad to happen to him. And uh, spoiler, he dies. 
much like almost everyone else in the film. But he also has like one of the most memorable kills from what for me in the entire franchise. So that's also pretty great. So you have Tommy Jarvis, you have Jimmy, you have great characters, you got the Doublemint twins. So you've got some fun characters. And then on top of that, you have a cool story on a, at a cool location. And the final chapter was filmed at a place called Zaka Lake, which is in California. And when I was taking notes for this entry, I looked it up because I just think it's a really beautiful location. And I think it's a big part of why I associate this film in particular with like a fun, beautiful summer. Um, and not a lot of movies have been filmed at Zaka Lake, which surprised me. But it's a beautiful location. The final chapter also features... Ted White as Jason Voorhees, and he's one of my favorite Jasons. And yeah, it's a good film. I, I mean, there's really not a whole lot else that I can say about it. It's a, a very standard, classic-feeling Friday the 13th film that does all of its predecessors justice. I can say, though, that Roger Ebert uh, evidently called it an immoral and reprehensible piece of trash. So <laughs> there's another reason to watch it right there. I do feel, since I'm on the subject of Friday the 13th, I would like to make a kind of secondary recommendation um, from this franchise. And I can't believe that I'm actually going to say this because it is very unlike me. I would also recommend watching the remake of Friday the 13th from 2009, particularly in the summer months. I think it's a really fun watch for this time of year. I haven't talked a whole lot about my personal feelings uh, regarding remakes and reboots yet, because I figure I'll probably devote an entire entry to that at some point in the future. Suffice it to say, I have pretty strong feelings against most of them, like 95% of remakes and reboots that I've seen I have hated. Or I have just felt baffled by their very existence, because primarily I just feel like most remakes and reboots are unnecessary. They might be necessary to the people who are receiving paychecks from them. But like, for me as an audience member, I don't need these stories to be retold. They've been told to me already. And I like them the way that they are. That being said, um, a friend of mine, Anthony Brownlee, who incidentally is a horror novelist, he has several books available on Amazon. I did not mean to like, shamelessly plug him just then, but I realized that now that I'm doing an audio blog, a couple of people somewhere in the world might listen to this. So I should probably say, talk about Anthony. Um, he's a very dear friend of mine who is also very much into horror films. We used to host, we used to co-host a uh, weekly horror movie night at our my apartment. And it was, it was a really fun time. We live in different states now. But um, anyway, he's a very knowledgeable guy. He's he spends a lot of time in the in the convention scene. He goes to a lot of horror conventions. Um, that's neither here nor there. He writes books and they're scary. And you can find them on Amazon. His name is Anthony Brown Lee. Uh, that's B R O W N L E E. <laughs> Check him out. Um, I think he and another friend of mine, Bruce, were kind of like duly responsible for me watching the Friday the 13th remake. I could be wrong about the details there, but that's what I remember. I don't think I would have watched it without someone forcing me to. And I'm so glad that they made me watch it because it's a really good movie. It's just, a, again, much like the final chapter, it is a fun, breezy, bloody slasher movie that does everything a slasher movie should. And to do that in 09, I feel is kind of, in my opinion, it's an even better feat because slasher movies have just gotten more and more, I don't know. There are a lot of contemporary slasher films. Uh, most of them are remakes of movies, of stories that have already been told. And so it seems like a lot of these more contemporary slashers are just trying to sort of outdo all of the others in shock value. And they're focusing a lot more on the kills than the actual 
story. And Friday the 13th also has a lot of really great kills. <laughs> but it just, it does it all in a much more like innocent feeling way, if that makes sense. It feels like the first Friday the 13th to me. I just was, I was very impressed with it. Um, and I, I, I do really enjoy Jared Padalecki as an actor. I mentioned in my first entry that I am a big fan of Supernatural. But I don't like him enough that it would have, you know, made this movie for me if there wasn't something else to enjoy about it. I, I like the new one also for Summer because it does it does kind of harken back to those first four Friday films um, that were very sort of summer camp feeling, um, particularly the first and the fourth. Uh, it just reminds me of those films a lot. And you have two groups of kids. You have the initial group of kids that we see, we meet, and we see them. And then we like in, almost immediately establish that they're clearly near Jason's territory and Jason goes berserk. And then you have the second group of kids. And we actually get more of a focus in the 09 Friday on that second group of kids than the first, um, which we've seen happen before. But it was actually kind of tragic in this case because... I really enjoyed the first group of kids, like a lot. And I wanted to see a lot more of them. I was really sad to see them go so early. Um, but, you know, it's a necessary evil means to an end. Um, in the second group of kids, you have one of the other things that I personally enjoy the most about this particular version of Friday is Travis Van Winkle, who plays the character of Trent. I never would have expected to see in a remake of a movie that I already love a new character that just blows my mind. Like he was so perfect. If you could probably like, if you were going to teach a class on horror tropes, you would definitely want an entire chapter or an entire, like, I don't know, section of your class. I'm not a teacher, but you would want it to be all about Travis Van Winkle, the character of Trent, all about how he is such the perfect slasher movie trope. I love I love Trent. And so he really did it for me. He he cracked me up and I just, I was with him the whole way and I just, I loved him. And there were obviously, I think uh, there was a, a couple of issues with the writing, but nothing really noteworthy, just little things. I, you know, I tend to nitpick. Uh, my only real complaint with the 09 Friday is I wish that they had either called it something else or just marketed it as a spiritual sequel instead of a, a full on remake. Because I personally have such negative associations with remakes that Again, I didn't watch the movie for a long time after it came out because I, I had no interest in seeing a story that I already love retold to me um, with cell phones and more, you know, I, I don't know, just the things that happen in newer slasher films that for some reason they want to modernize it. We all know that it's like a money making thing, but still bothers me. This is the whole thing. I don't want to talk about this. Uh, and so I just wish that they had called it something else because I feel that the film pays a, a beautiful homage to its predecessors. And it deserves more. It deserved more than just you know being lumped in with all the other reboots. The film also going back to sort of the summertime theme of this entry. The 09 Friday was filmed in various locations throughout Texas, which also might be one of the reasons that I kind of crave it during this season because most of the films that I've seen, the horror films that I know were filmed in Texas, definitely have like a very distinct summery feel to them that not. A whole lot of other horror movies are able to achieve. I think it's like the magic, the summary magic of Texas. <laughs> so those are the two Friday the 13th movies other than the first that I would recommend for summer viewing. <laughs> Now, 
Now, the next two movies that I want to mention, I'm not actually going to spend a lot of time on them, primarily because I don't want to accidentally spoil anything about either of them for anyone that may not have seen them. They have they have great kind of twist endings, you could say. Uh, so I don't want to talk about either of them too much. And I also thought it was appropriate to put them together because neither of them are actually set in the summertime. I think they're both set in the fall. <laughs> I don't know why I really like watching either of them in summer, but I want to kind of feel that out a little bit because I, I definitely wanted to mention them, but I hadn't really, I didn't really put a lot of thought into why until I hit record. I was like, I'm just going to kind of figure it out as I go. Um, the uh, So both of these films were shot in what I believe were like autumn months, but I love watching them this time of year. The first one was directed by Alex Aja in 2003 and it's High Tension. Um, it's a French film. I mean, it's set in in the south of France, but it was shot in Romania. And like I said, I'm pretty sure it was fall. There are definitely some fall feelings there. But there's sort of like a sheen on all of the actors that kind of makes everybody look just a little hot and sweaty. Maybe that's partly why I associate it with summer. Also, because um, the main character of the film, Marie, played by Cécile de France, who is just so good. She's fucking phenomenal. There's a, a kind of famous scene in the film where she's having some me time in the upstairs bedroom of her friend's family home. Um, and I'm, it just something about that scene in particular. Uh, it just feels like a very late night in August kind of summery scene. And that might sound weird to those of you who are familiar with the scene that I'm referring to. I don't know why. It reminds me of this this time of year. It's weird. But it's a great movie. And it's a unique film as well, in, in more ways than one. And, and Cécile de France really is a big part of that. She just, there's something really, I don't want to use the word raw, because I feel like that word is overused. There's just a very, like, natural human quality to the way she plays Marie. You feel like you are, much like with Dee Wallace and Cujo, you're just kind of right there with Marie. Like, And that's important, I think, particularly in this film. So you just have the story of two girls uh, one of which is Marie, who are driving out to the country to spend, I believe, a weekend with Marie's friend's family. And they live, you know, just in a remote part of what is supposed to be the south of France in a big old house. And that's just the premise of the movie, essentially. <laughs> They're just out in the middle of nowhere. So you have that classic isolation, a lot of nature around. And I can't, there's, it's one of those movies that like I have to be guarded when I talk about it because I really would never want to ruin anything about this movie for anyone. So that was all I wanted to do was mention it. I didn't want to go too far into it. Um, I was really interested to learn that, again, also like Cujo, apparently it was really cold for the actors in this movie at the time of filming. But again, everybody just looks so sweaty. Like kudos to like every makeup department that is able to make like freezing cold actors look like it's 110 degrees outside. Maybe it's like a simple, easy thing to do, but it feels like really, I'm impressed by it. They do it really well in both Cujo and High Tension. Uh, I didn't realize that Gino De Rossi actually did, was a part of the effects team for this film, which is really cool. He uh, worked on a lot of Lucio Fulci's films uh, and 
when I think of Fulci, I think of that phrase, you know, like the, the grandfather of gore. And, and um, the movie that I remember most vividly from him is City of the Living Dead from 1980. I think that might have been the first Fulci film I saw. And it's the one I know that I've seen like multiple times. He's not a director that I spend a lot of time watching. But when I think of him, I think of that film. But then I also think of just gore. And I didn't really feel feel that high tension was overly gory, but it was definitely brutal. There were there are moments in the film where you have to just stop and mire at the blood. So I was excited when I found out that that was Gino De Rossi, in part his work, um, because that's that's cool. And it made a little bit of sense to me. You know, it's like, oh, neat. Well, that explains one of the reasons that the effects in this film are so um, subtle, but impressive. And maybe maybe I'm also remembering the subtlety wrong. Maybe it wasn't as subtle as I remember. <laughs> I've only actually ever seen High Tension twice, and both times were a couple of years ago. So I don't think of it as a gory film. When you say High Tension, that's not the first thing I think. So I, I'm remembering the gore being subtle. But anyway, it's a very good, uh, very moving and emotionally disturbing film with quite a bit of violence in it set in a remote location that feels like summer to me, but is probably fall in Romania. The second film that I would also recommend is not even really, I think some might even say that it shouldn't be included on a list of movies, but I consider it to be a short film. It was the premiere episode of the unfortunately short-lived series Masters of Horror, and it was called Incident on and Off a Mountain Road. It was directed by Don Coscarelli, and it's uh, again, it's, it was an episode of a TV series, but Masters of Horror, uh, for anyone that might be listening to this that isn't familiar with it, was a collection of what were essentially short films. Each episode of the show was a different story by a different iconic horror director. I think it turned into a different show. I think FX picked it up and it became Fear Itself. Don't quote me on that. I actually didn't research that, but I'm pretty sure there was something like that happened to it. But um, in its day, it was one of my favorite things on television. And I thought it was neat because oftentimes the, uh, the directors would feature actors that they used in their other films, like fe- actors they really liked working with, like The Black Cat, which is uh, a story of Edgar Allan Poe, was directed by Stuart Gordon. And Poe is played by the unbelievably talented Jeffrey Combs. And he was also Herbert West in Stuart Gordon's Reanimator, that kind of thing. So you see a lot of like familiar faces from the horror community. And that was something I always loved about Masters of Horror. And the same is true of Incident on and off the mountain road. I want to say it again because I think I like immediately derailed myself again. It's called Incident on and off a mountain road. It's amazing. <laughs> it's really, really good. Um, and Don Coscarelli does the same thing with this film. Um, as it features a very, very small character um, or briefly encountered character played by Angus Scrim, who played the tall man in Coscarelli's Phantasm. So that's, that's got some cool, it's got some cool stuff going on in it. But it's a great movie also set in the fall. And this is undeniably set in autumn. 100% this is an autumn movie. But for some reason, probably because this also has a lot of that like sticky, sweaty, alone in the woods and it's warm kind of feel to it. A lot of it takes place outdoors. You have Ellen and Bruce. Ellen played by Brie Turner. Ethan Embry is playing Bruce. They are a young couple. We see how they meet. We see them sort of starting to date and how their relationship gets more serious. They get married. And throughout the course of their relationship, which were kind of shown in a bit of a vignette, Bruce becomes 
more and more intense. He starts to kind of slowly become an isolated survivalist. And Ellen is unfortunately kind of like wrapped up in that. There, I believe, are signs in the very, you know, like throughout this, this, this vignette of their relationship, you do see little moments that Ethan Embry delivers where you know, the audience knows from the beginning that Bruce is probably not going to be the perfect husband for Ellen. But Ellen doesn't see that, you know, she has a crush on him. And then that develops into more like love. And she and she tries to uh, kind of play along with this survivalism in the beginning. And she's she's putting up with it. She's dealing with it because he's her husband. Um, but she, it definitely wears her down. So you have this story of these two people. And then it becomes a very different story. I can't really talk about it too much, but I think Ethan Embry's character is also a big part of why I associate this film with this time of year. Because something about films about hardcore survivalism screams summer to me. I don't know. And there is a remote cabin in the film, actually two remote cabins in the film. And I, it's another one, much like High Tension, like I said, I can't talk too much about it because I, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. I will say that Angus Scrimm's character, whose name is Buddy, um, is adorable. <laughs> and John DeSantis makes an appearance in the film. Um, quite a bit of one, actually. And I adore him. He's great. I, I can't really talk more about him in case you don't know who he is. If you do know who he is, then you may know what kind of character he's playing because he's John DeSantis. He basically plays the same character, kind of character in most films. Um, but I will say he's not actually the most menacing character in the movie. And that surprised me. So... Anyway, it's great. I I very much enjoy it. And so I, I believe Incident came out sometime. I, I know it premiered in 2005, but I'm going to guess it was shot probably in, I don't know, fall of 2004. So I would recommend both of those films. And it was very hard not to spoil anything. I hope I did an okay job. <laughs> While we're on the subject of television series, I would also like to recommend the sixth season of American Horror Story, which is the Roanoke season. And I do this bearing in mind that I think a lot of people are starting to feel the same way that I have felt for a while now about American Horror Story, which is that I, I love certain seasons and I really strongly dislike others. And they, they definitely have started to lose me again. When I first saw the show, I, I started with season two and then I went backward and watched one and then three and I I loved them all actually in that exact order I really enjoyed the second season I I did enjoy the first and then I thought Coven was okay um and I absolutely did not like Freak Show and I hated Hotel so it was like man just it's all over the place and of course um on second viewing I like Coven a lot more now than I used to and the first season was my favorite until I saw Roanoke. So if, if like me, you kind of burned out or you were kind of just reluctant to keep going with American Horror Story prior to the release of Roanoke, please, I urge anyone and everyone to give Roanoke a try. I think it is flawless. I think it is a flawless horror story uh, from start to finish. Everything about it, I feel that it is so unique. It is brilliantly written it's wonderfully acted. Obviously, you have a lot of the same faces in Roanoke that you've seen in previous seasons. You've got Sarah Paulson, Evan Peters, um, Kathy Bates, who I, I mean, again, she's somebody that I'm just partial to. So typically speaking, if Kathy Bates is in something, I'm much more likely to watch it than 
than not. And even the seasons of American Horror Story that I haven't enjoyed as much, if Kathy's in it, I, I like her in it. You know, that's just sort of the rule for me. Um, so you do have a lot of uh, familiar recurring faces from AHS, and then you have a couple of new faces. Uh, and like Cuba Gooding Jr. is in this season. Roanoke um, is the story of you have um, a group of people, well, actually just a married couple, and then a couple of people that are close to them who went through a traumatic experience and their lives have been turned into uh, kind of a documentary series with dramatic reenactments from other actors who are playing them. And the first few episodes of this series, we are watching that that show. We're watching the show about these people being reenacted by other people. And we've got interviews from the original people also. It's just, it's actually, I've never tried to explain this season to anyone, but it's hard. Um, it's, it's very unique though. And so you're, you're kind of just watching, you're not watching American Horror Story. You're watching uh, just a TV show that you could see on any given channel about this horrible thing that happened and these dramatic reenactments. And then uh, the show kind of switches to Hollywood and they are, talking about the success of My Roanoke Nightmare, which was the show that we watched for those few few episodes. And they want to do a reunion show where they bring in the people that were actually a part of this traumatic experience and then the actors who were playing them in the show. And they want to put all of them back in the house where everything horrible happened. There's also some found footage, which I either love or hate found footage. I, I think I'm actually going to say something about that later. I think I made a note about that when I talk about another film. But um, in this case, I really enjoyed the found footage. I thought that they did a very good job with it. And it has that ensemble feeling, but it also is a very organized ensemble, which is a big part of my problem with some of the seasons of American Horror Story. It's just there's so many stories happening at once. So many characters. I get lost. I have a really hard time keeping up. I can't even really care about story A because I have stories C and F being shoved down my throat. Meanwhile, what happened to story D? That kind of thing. Whereas with Roanoke, I felt like they really brought it back around to like Murder House, where everything is just much more focused and uh, much easier to follow. And Kathy Bates's character is, again, I know, I realize that I'm, I'm biased. You know, it's the same thing with Crispin Glover in the final chapter. These are some of my favorite actors. So, of course, I'm going to be partial to their characters, but... I don't feel that that should take away from how wonderful their performances were. And Kathy Bates, actually, there's a scene in Roanoke where she's giving an interview. She was um, one of the actresses reenacting the events that happened. And there's a scene where she's giving an interview and she thinks that the interview is kind of like about one thing. And they reveal halfway through that it's actually about something else. And like, no joke, I'm actually tearing up right now. Like... <laughs> It is like so heartbreaking and a huge part of that heartbreak comes from Kathy Bates's performance of that of that scene like her reaction when she realizes that the interview is not what she thought it was going to be is so real and like painful and I know that none of what I've talked about sells this as a summer show but uh I don't fucking care it's good it's really good. Um, and it, it does take place um, in what I believe to be the middle of summer, if not early fall, out in a very rural part of a flat part of the world. I can't. I, seriously, it's Roanoke. It's, it's Is it like North Carolina? Um, oh, God, where is it set? My brain. I don't remember. 
this was the good thing about when I was live streaming on YouTube. If my if my brain froze and I couldn't remember a detail that I'd forgotten to write down, somebody could just like tell me, <laughs> and then I would be able to say yes, this. But there, that's not happening. Um, but it's 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 got a very southern, like American Gothic feel to it, and uh, definitely southern Gothic. The, the the reason I think I'm having a hard time remembering the whole Roanoke thing is because it's not actually set in the place that most of us associate with the Roanoke thing. It's like someplace else. And then you learn that Roanoke actually was here or something. It's like a, a big reveal about like, actually everybody is misunderstanding Roanoke. Um, it's such a great show though. It really is wonderful. And everybody does a great job. And also Frances Conroy is in it. She's another one that I love. She's another actress that I absolutely love. Um, and she gives a bang-up performance. She's really great. I wanted more of Frances Conroy because I love her as well. <laughs> but yeah, so I recommend Roanoke for summer viewing for sure. I wasn't sure if I was actually going to talk about this last film because of how I knew I wanted to start this entry um, I didn't want to talk, as I said earlier, about any of like the more classic films that were popping up on a lot of lists of like essential summertime scary movies all over the internet. I wanted to focus on maybe lesser recommended films that I love. And so it felt a little unfair <laughs> to talk about one of those classics. But, you know, this is the second episode of an audio blog that I'm doing that like four people know about and three of them are my friends. So like, I'm not super worried about breaking my own rules at this point. And um, I can't, I just can't talk about movies that I like to watch during the summer months without mentioning, I know what you did last summer. It is a very popular choice for this time of year. It's just a very popular film in general, but I'm going to talk about it anyway, because I love it. And I mean, the movie was released in 97. I was 14 when this movie came out, and I was in the throes of the Scream craze. I had been a huge fan of Scream. I think my stepsister and I, we lived about three blocks away from a dollar theater. And when Scream came to our dollar theater, I think we went to see it every day that it was there. Pretty sure I saw it every day. The ending to the first Scream had been ruined by her for me, but I didn't care because it was amazing. And um, so when I, when I knew what we did last summer came out, which... Both Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer, the, the screenplay for that one, were written by Kevin Williamson. And him being attached to the project just sort of makes me predisposed to like it. I'm also a big fan of the faculty. I just like Kevin Williamson. I think he writes um, young people well. <laughs> and he also brings a lot of that, those sort of like meta qualities, meta moments, not just with Scream, but like in general, he's really good at kind of creating self-aware horror films with with good character work. So uh, I really like Kevin Williamson. And I'm also, I think because I was a teenager when these movies were popular, and I was that means I was a teenager when the actors were popular, and I just have a higher than average tolerance for them that I think some of my older and even younger friends don't necessarily have. Like, I'm thinking particularly about Freddie Prinze Jr. and Ryan Felipe, especially Ryan Felipe. It is weird. 
like, when did everyone in the world decide that they hated him? Because I don't remember. I, I guess I just missed that conversation because I he never bothered me. I wasn't like a huge fan of most of his movies. I've seen a couple that I thought were okay. And I thought he did a decent job in and I know what you did, but like people like vehemently dislike him and I don't, I don't get it. So anyway, he doesn't bother me. And then Freddie Prince Jr. I have a soft spot for him. I'm a big fan of Boston Legal. I really like that he gets to play Denny Crane's son. And even though his Bostonian accent is like one of the least believable accents I think I've ever heard. Um, I think he's cute. I just, you know, I see him and I'm like, oh, Freddie Prince Jr. <laughs> You're so 90s. You just, I don't know. I have a soft spot for him. And then Sarah Michelle Gellar, who plays Helen in the film, uh, who I personally believe is in in some ways the best thing about the movie. Um, I love her. I love Buffy. You know, she's Sarah Michelle Gellar. And being a fan of Buffy, I think, makes the character of Helen even better because, you know, Buffy is sort of like the absolute superheroine. Like, it doesn't get any more badass than Buffy Summers. And at the same time that she was playing that character... Here she comes uh, to play the complete opposite character. <laughs> and that was really fun. It was nice to get to watch her like scream and run away. Um, I'm not really going to worry about protecting spoilers for this particular film. So if you haven't seen it, I, this might be a good time to turn the blog off. Um, especially because I want to keep talking about Sarah Michelle Gellar's character. And I can't do that without spoiling the fact that she not only dies... But man, does she die. Like, one of the more memorable deaths in any slasher film, I think, is Helen's death. So you have the story of I Know What You Did. I'm sure most people that would be listening to this, if anyone does, knows the story. Um, you just you have four kids who are friends in high school. The story starts on graduation night, and they are drunk, and they are having the time of their lives. They're celebrating, getting ready to go off to college. And they're driving along a winding road and they think they hit someone and they basically cover up the fact that they killed somebody. That's just to sum that up quickly. And then they drift apart over the following year. They go off to school and, you know, certain, well, uh, Helen played by Sarah Michelle Gellar and then Ryan Felipe's character, Barry, which I can't remember if. Barry and Ray were the names of the characters in the Lois Duncan novel. Somebody is responsible for naming them Barry and Ray and then casting Freddie Prince Jr. and Ryan Felipe in those roles. Because that's actually the most unbelievable thing about I Know What You Did Last Summer is that those two guys would be named Barry and Ray. They're just they're the most ridiculous names for like young people in modern times, especially like those two characters, those two actors. Um but anyway, they stay behind and, and um, Jennifer Love Hewitt's character, Julie and Ray, they go off to college. But everybody drifts apart because they can't deal with what happened to them. You know, they feel incredibly guilty. They all sort of fall apart in their own way. At least three of them do. And then something happens that brings everybody back together. And Julie receives a letter, a note rather, that says, I know what you did last summer on it. And it's not signed and there's no other explanation and so then we watch this group of people kind of migrate back together and try to figure out what to do about this mystery person who knows about this crime that they committed and covered up and that's essentially the story so it's there aren't a lot of characters in it so yeah there are um there's a, a good a fair amount of kills in the film but it's not i wouldn't really call it a kill by numbers because it just doesn't have that large of a cast 
Um, and two of the main four characters do survive. But Helen does not survive. And her death, like I said, is one of my absolute favorites of all time, primarily just because it is so dragged out. It takes Helen so long to die. And she is running for her life. She is fighting so hard and she's doing such a great job for so long. And like right when you think she's actually going to get away, she doesn't. She just dies so hard. And I thought it was really fun to see that happen, particularly to Sarah Michelle Gellar. And it happens to her again in Scream 2, but not nearly as much, like not to that extent. Yeah. And so you have a lot of like misdirection and misconceptions. Uh, everybody sort of has trust issues with everyone else. You're not quite sure who the killer is. And then there's a red herring in the film. The killer played by Muse Watson. I had never heard of him. And I looked him up on IMDb. And he's been in like a billion things. None of which like have I ever seen. <laughs> but I really enjoyed him in this film. I thought I thought he was a good, gruff, surly fisherman dude. And I thought he was super believable. The other thing that I don't like about the film, apart from ba Barry and Ray, no offense to people out there that are named Barry and Ray, it's just look at Ryan Felipe. Look at him. He's not Barry. That's not his name. You know, like, it's just not. Maybe Freddie Prince Jr. could pull off Ray. It's like he's a Raymond. But I also, there's a scene in the film where um, Jennifer Love Hewitt is like, just reach, she's reached the end of her rope with this mystery killer that's like fucking with them. And... She just sort of like walks out into the middle of the road and starts spinning around with her arms out. And the camera is like directly above her looking down. And she's just going, what are you waiting for? Huh? It's so bad. It's so bad. I refer you to the Bill Denbrow cheek jaw open zoom in scene from from the 90s version of it. It was that level of just awful. But other than that, I thought it was a great movie with great stuff in it. It is. Uh, it was shot in North Carolina, and it's actually set over the 4th of July. So I felt like it would also be an appropriate film to kind of end on because we're coming up on the 4th of July. Just in, you know, We just got a few days left, and I definitely want to talk about Jaws. But I Know What You Did Last Summer is also a film that I like to watch on that holiday. It's got a very summery feel to it. Yeah. Summertime, by the bay, some fishing, and some 90s skirts. It's got it all. Thanks so much for listening to me ramble on about summertime scary movies. Some honorable mentions that I wanted to talk about in this entry, but I thought might be better discussed in future entries were April Fool's Day from 1986, which obviously is set in the spring. <laughs> but it does have like a very summer vacation gone wrong feel to it. And there are a lot of outdoor scenes and just like uh, some shenanigans that are typically found in a lot of like summer camp slashers. It's also just a brilliant movie, and I really wish that more people appreciated it. I'm, I'm probably going to do a future entry where I just talk about April Fool's Day. <laughs> also, a couple of horror comedy mashups that I think are really fun for this time of year uh, are Tucker and Dale vs. Evil and, of course, Army of Darkness. I also really like The Descent for summer. I think that it's, um, you know, it's got that like oppressive, claustrophobic, too hot to leave the house, everybody's covered in grime and sweat kind of thing going on. Plus, it just has what I think is a really wonderful story. And The Hills Have Eyes, which, I mean, I think that's also kind of a summer classic, but I didn't see it on a lot of those lists to which I referred earlier. So those are just some, some I think, other really fun summertime films. 
Um, also The Birds by Alfred Hitchcock, which may also be set in spring, but I really like watching that this time of year. I did notice that a lot of people recommend The Shining for this season. And I, for me, that's more of an autumn, like late autumn, early winter film. Like that's typically when I want to watch The Shining or so far into winter that like you're just done you want winter gone you all you feel really like shut in you're getting cabin fever i think the shining is really good for that time too like like mid mid to late january is a good time to watch the shining uh i've also read a lot of recommendations for a film called the bay from 2012 but i haven't seen that one I know it was directed by Barry Levinson, and I like him. So I hope that from this list, uh, if anyone's listening, that you found something that sounds good to you. Until next time, creep it real. 